Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the allingospel.com website. Welcome to your Sunday night family Bible study. Uh, we're going to pick up in 2 Samuel chapter 19. I guess I didn't finish the chapter last week. So we're going to pick up in verse 41 of chapter 19 and actually finish the chapter. And then we're going to try to still do two chapters tonight. So buckle up and get ready. We'll dig into all of it. David is in the middle of reestablishing the kingdom of Israel. They've had a civil war. It was his son that led the civil war. And as they come back from the Civil War, at the end of 2 Samuel, we've kind of got these four conflicts in reuniting the kingdom, but we're kind of in the addendum at the end of the book. So they're just kind of wrapping some things up. But um, So we don't get exact timelines on some of these things. It's like they got added to 2 Samuel later on. But they are part of just, again, this is still a book called Samuel. And this is the influence of Samuel's ministry as the, the prophet that set up Saul and the prophet that set up David. So we're going to go all the way kind of through the end of David's kingship as the end of 2 Samuel. So that's where we're at. Uh, Absalom, you could say, was hung out to dry last week. Eh? And uh, he had a lot of pride. It was kind of one of his hang-ups. Verse 41, chapter 19. We're just going to get to the word. Just then all the men of Israel came to the king, and they said to the king, Why have our brethren, the men of Judah, stolen you away and brought the king, his household, and all of David's men with him across the Jordan? So all the men of Judah answered the men of Israel, Because the king is a close relative of ours. Why then are you angry over this matter? Have we ever eaten at the king's expense, or have, has he given us any gifts? And the men of Israel answered the men of Judah and said, We have ten shares in the king. Therefore also we have more right to David than you. Why then do you despise us? Were we not the first to advise bringing back our king? Yet the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. Have you ever heard people argue? And it just goes back and forth and back and forth and nobody seems to get an inch on the other one because they're both already decided and who they are. So the king honors one group in that Judah shows up to help escort him across the Jordan. That's verse 41. And the other 10 tribes, you know, again, the men of Judah is one group and the men of Israel is the other 10 tribes. They start to have this big argument back and forth and they bicker. And, and again, the application is not hard. Hey, we in the church sometimes bicker with each other over stupid stuff really stupid things that split churches and divide congregations and fellowships get really worked over, up over this and I think the enemy just loves it when Christians argue with one another over ridiculous things. So that happens and it happens all the time. The accusation here is one of oddly enough kidnapping that they stole David away. At best it's kidnapping or at best I suppose it's they didn't just wait for David, for their other tribes to get there before they escorted him across the river. I'm thinking that would be awkward because you'd be standing there waiting for David to cross the river and David's like 
okay, it's not that big of a deal. I'm just going to cross the river. And they'd have to say, no, 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 you need to wait before you do that. So you get a sense that crossing the Jordan had become a very symbolic thing for the Israelite people for good reason, right? And that it's a historic moment when the king crosses the river and comes into the kingdom. And the question here of who gets the most honor, it's not even about David at this point. It's about if the the tribes of Israel or the tribes of Judah and Simeon's want, kind of been absorbed by Judah at this point, which of those two groups gets more honor or privilege? And this is essentially the argument a lot of times in churches. Who gets priority over decision-making and how things are going to happen? And how does that work? Uh, so you get these questions. It is an argument. We get both sides of the argument. I think the writer's just trying to give us a gist of it. it they may have argued for longer than three sentences, Right? But we get the idea of what this is about um, and how quick it is um, to worry about who God loves the most or who has the most priority within groups of Christians. So, um, and, and oddly enough, the tribes of Israel are all upset that they don't get to bring the king back when they were the first to leave him, right? So in 2 Samuel 2, Judah followed David and it was Saul's son that led the first uh, rebellion or competition uh, Ishbosheth, and that was they came from the tribe of Benjamin, and Benjamin and Ephraim kind of lead the tribes of Israel. So they have this kind of thing. And, and the other part about this, <laughs> this debate is it's the ten tribes of Israel that are going to break off from the nation right after the next generation Solomon. They're the first ones to leave the country. So I think one of the reasons the writer is putting these verses in here is this is the beginning of a deeper split that's going to actually divide Israel in the along the same lines as who's fighting and arguing here. Arguments lead to division. And so we see that kind of taking its birth right now. Um, Mark 3.25, a house divided against itself is a house that cannot stand. So the house of Israel isn't going to stand because they can't even find unity amongst each other. And you know, the thing is, the closer that people get to one another, the more we bug one another, and the more you have to overlook what bothers you about people. And I think that's the power of marriage, of parenting. I think that's the power of lifetime friendships, is that you get to know somebody so well, you even know the things that bug you about them, and then you get over it. And you relax those, and you just say, those are the things that aren't going to bug me. Uh, Israel, of course, can't do that. Um, but the church had the same problems, like the split between the Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church was an early split in the church. When the Roman Empire kind of fell, the church split in two. And it wasn't the last split. Churches are going to keep splitting throughout history. And you can argue that those splits are actually part of how God's grown the church. You can also argue the church would be a lot stronger if it never split in the first place. And part of that splitting is who's going to make the decisions and who's going to get the honor. And the, the interesting part about that is the person who should get the honor in this argument is David and God. And the people that are worrying about who gets the most honor aren't giving the honor to the right place. And I think the same thing happens even with the, the Roman Catholics and the Eastern Orthodox. They're worried about who gets to be in charge when God should be the one who's in charge. At the end of the day, and that's hard for us humans to figure out. It's like, well, yeah, but some humans got to make the decision. And so that trusting that you actually are following the Holy Spirit is one of the first things to go. Then we'll go to chapter 20, 2 Samuel chapter 20. Right after that rebellion gets worked out, then here's another rebellion. This is the story of Sheba. And there happened to be, again, we don't get a timestamp. It's just there happened to be there a rebel whose name was Sheba, the son of Bitri. 
Really, Paul? Are you just saying that so I say a swear word the whole time? I don't see it. it, it maybe it's bickery. Okay. The son, I just can't do it. The son of bickery. If I'm mispronouncing that, you folks, you're going to just have, that's just a Minnesota accent we're going to throw on there. Sheba, the son of bickery, a Benjaminite, and he blew the trumpet, because I'd be giggling the whole night if I said it the other way. He blew a trumpet and said, we have no share in David, nor do we have an inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tent, so Israel. So oddly enough, the word, uh, the, there, was, there happened to be a rebel. The word rebel in the Hebrew is Belial. Do you recognize that word? Right? So it's the name, it, it, it means worthlessness or wickedness. Um, Baal is an actual Canaanite god, so it's very similar to that word. But it basically means there happened to be a worthless person whose name was Sheba. So again, I've told stories about like church splits and whatnot. A lot of times the, the source of division is somebody who isn't really following the Lord in the first place. Kind of worthless when it comes to the kingdom. They're not the people that do the work and serve in the church. They're the people that complain about the church. But they're generally not the hard workers or the useful people. So this is the earmark of all rebellions in all of history. Earmark number one, a disregard for the leader. The son of, son of uh, Sheba says, we have no share in David. We, we're not part of what David's doing. So they disregard the leader. Two, they want something else. We don't have inheritance. They want inheritance. They want more of something. And then three, then they leave. They blow the trumpet and they say every man to his tent and they just bail on the ministry. So this is kind of how rebellions work, good or bad. That's kind of a neutral thing. The American Revolution followed the same pattern. We don't regard King George. We want to keep our taxes. We're going to leave the country. So it doesn't matter if the rebellion is arguably a good rebellion or a bad rebellion. It's just the shape of a rebellion. It has to take those forms. So here they don't feel David is going to consider their interests that he's going to favor his tribe, Judah, over the other tribes. So we have this rift that started in the end of chapter 19, and it keeps building right here. It's really about honoring themselves over honoring King David at the end of the day. So is this a bad rebellion? Well, they're, they have indignation over any sort of reasonable consideration. David hasn't done any favoritism that we can see in 2 Samuel. So under his rule, there hasn't really necessarily... In fact, he's shown favor for Saul's children and Saul's house to whatever degree he was able to do that. So we've, we've seen kind of the opposite. So you get Sheba being loud. It says he blew the trumpet. That's usually a call to arms or a way to gather the armies. So he's loud. He's indignant. He's angry. He's causing a, a ruckus in the streets. And, and then he starts to have slogans. So... Your Bible might have, we have no share in David, in quotes. There's actually no quotes in the Hebrew. But the fact that it says he blew a trumpet and said, says that this was kind of a slogan that got shouted through the streets over and over and over again. So one of the, the indication of a bad rebellion is that idea that people get indignant, but they don't have a reason for being indignant. They're just angry and mad, and they shout in the streets. And this is one of the things that we as believers should probably stay away from. Right? So if we have a problem with somebody, the Bible says we should go to somebody one-on-one. -on -one. If that doesn't work, we go to somebody and bring kind of a mature believer with us to sit down maybe two-on-one. -on -one. And if that doesn't work, you bring it to the whole body and you share it with everybody. Say, we got to have a, a kind of a, a intervention for this person. So that's not happening with Sheba at all. He just goes straight to the streets, marches, shouts, yells. His goal then isn't to help David be a better king. 
His goal is to simply not serve. So that's what he's doing. So the recruitment then comes over service. Instead of actually being a servant to King David and helping him in the kingdom, he starts recruiting people to himself. That's called herding, right? I want to get as many people to agree with me as possible. Because if you all agree with me, then I must not be wrong. And so this is kind of common when you see people that are divisive. They don't actually have a plan, indignation over reasonableness, and they actually do recruiting over service. They don't actually want to help or do anything. So it's slogans and bumper sticker movements over actually having reason and helping and putting in the hard work of making the world a better place. This is the difference between just yelling and screaming or actually contributing something. So Sheba's one of these people. It's a childish rebellion based on pride and discontent. Um, so then every man to his tents is kind of, we've seen that phrase before in 2 Samuel, it kind of means the battle's over, everybody go home. So as David is gathering people, Sheba's running around saying, don't listen to David, just go home. You don't have to listen to that guy. And in doing that, he's undermining David's rule. So, so why in the world, if, David, if Sheba believes this, couldn't Sheba just not follow the summons and stay at home himself? Why does he need to recruit other people to defy David? And that's the, these kinds of questions are things when we're dealing with people that are highly emotional, but they're active, they're activists. Like, we have to start processing a little bit. Like, why are you active and why aren't you helping solve anything? Like, if you really feel strongly about that, go do it. Make that happen. And why do you need me to do it with you? Why don't you just lead by example and do it yourself? So then it gets to verse 2. So every man of Israel deserted David, Israel being those ten tribes, and they followed Sheba, the son of Bichri. But the men of Judah, from the Jordan as far as Jerusalem, remained loyal to their king. So this is interesting. This is civil war number two. He had one with Absalom. Now he has one with this guy named Sheba. It's Israel versus Judah. Again, the same split. And it says every man of Israel. Uh, we've seen that a few times too. When it says every man of Israel, it doesn't mean every head count. It means kind of the leader elders. So those, those heads of household all kind of led their households in different directions. So the elders are against David. We're going to see later that there's good people in every one of those tribes that do follow David. So it's not like every literal human being, but it is all of the heads of the house. So the, um, we have that. So the division is what humans do in the flesh. Obviously, if you're not following the Lord, you're probably following yourself, which makes it hard for you to follow the Lord, Lord's anointed or anybody who's been called to a mission. So humans don't make unity in the church. We keep unity in the church. The Holy Spirit is what makes unity in the church, or even in a Bible study. Uh, Ephesians 4.1, Therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, I beseech you to walk worthy of the calling in which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. God gives us unity. He gave Israel a king and he gave them a reason to follow the king, they just choose not to follow that. So it's, I, th I just think it's interesting that here's Sheba doing his thing, and David's now got to deal with him. Verse 3, Now David came to his house at Jerusalem, and the king took ten women, his concubines, whom he had left to keep the house. These are the women that Absalom raped up on the roof. Um, and he put them in seclusion and supported them, but did not go into them, so they were shut up to the day of their death, living in widowhood. This is an odd little passage to throw in here, isn't it? Right? He's got a rebellion, Sheba, but he's going home to deal with these women. Um, 
2 Samuel 16 is where Absalom kind of had his way with these women. What do you do with these women? Because under the law, they're innocent. In fact, they were raped publicly. So it is not their fault. And I think this is one of the things that today we kind of, how do you deal with a rape situation? It's not a small point that under Jewish law, these women are completely innocent. They do not need to be punished. On the other hand, like, does David just take them back as wives or concubines? Like, this is a, a gratefully not a situation we deal with very much because we don't have as much polygamy. Um, nor should David put them out because they're still in his household. He's responsible for these women. And it's not of their own fault. In fact, you could argue it was Absalom's fault. You could also argue David shouldn't have left them behind. I don't think David had any imagination that Absalom would do this to these women. Yet they, they did. So... The word seclusion there is mismeret in the Hebrew. He put them in mismeret. It means to be guarded, kept, or in ward. He put them in, in a guarded situation and supported them. Uh, I think we think seclusion is like to be in a prison, like isolation chamber. He just said, basically, you're going to get your own houses. So they're not living in David's house anymore. But he gives them their own guarded place to live and is going to provide for them. And then the word supported is actually, in the Hebrew, is cool. I don't, maybe that's where we got our word cool from. Um, cool, which means to be sustained, fed, held, or to be endured or, or abided to abide with. So he both provided for them and made sure they were comfortable. And so this is an interesting kind of thing. So to shut up, again, in my translation, it says, so they were shut up to the day of their death. The word there is sarar. It means to close or to cover. And it's often used in terms of sex. So it basically means they aren't asked to have any more sexual, for the rest of their life, they're off the hook. And I think in polygamy, that can be kind of a blessing too. Like they're not expected to serve David in that way anymore. Leviticus 18, 18, nor shall you take a woman as a rival to her sister to, and it's the same word, to shut up her nakedness while the other is alive. So you're not supposed to have sex with another woman when you have your wife alive, right? So... Again, this situation with this, these women have been raped. It's a horrible situation. Uh, what David does is says, I'm going to provide for you and make you comfortable for the rest of your life, and you never have to worry about having sex again. And, and, and in that sense, they can, they're retired, they're done, and that horrible situation, you can't really make it right. The person who did it's already been killed. Uh, so the best David can do is recognize that he's still responsible for these women. So he is, for the rest of his life, going to provide for these women and take care of them. It's interesting that people read that verse or these verses, verses three. Uh, it's just verse three, isn't it? Verse three, and they think this is a punishment for these women. I don't, I don't know. When I really looked up those words, it kind of flipped my understanding of that. I don't think this is punishment at all. I think this is David taking responsibility for a mess that he kind of helped make. And he's showing a lot of mercy and, and actually an image of God's love for these women to just take them in, and they're covered for the rest of their life. They're taken care of. Um, I think this is what Jesus talks about when, he's, when he talks about taking care of women and children. Like those that are innocent and those that are not responsible for the, the horrors of this world should be taken care of. And those people should be taken in and, and supported for the rest of their lives. Doing whatever is possible to make this right for these people. Um, it's part of honoring your parents, honoring your mother and father when they're too old to provide for themselves. It's kind of our responsibility to take care of those parents and make sure that they're comfortable and that they're taken care of. And it's the same principle that we don't just leave people or throw people out when it's convenient. People are valuable and to be treated accordingly. Verse 4 says, 
And the king said to Amasa, assemble the men of Judah for me within three days and be present here yourself. So Amasa went to assemble the men of Judah, but he delayed longer than the time set in which David had appointed him. So we're flipping back to the story with Sheba. Sheba's this rebellion out there. The women are taken care of, and then it flips right back to Amasa. Back in chapter 17, Amasa was the general of Absalom's army. So when they brought the civil war to an end, David told Amasa, I'm going to put you in charge of my army. Joab's a little bit of a loose nut, a loose cannon on the bridge. And they put Amasa in charge of the army. Joab's not happy about that. You can imagine Joab's not going to take that for very long. Um, and David gives Amasa his first command here, go and get this done. Then verse 5, he doesn't get it done. Okay, this is, I resonated with this. Having, if it, for those of you that have been in leadership, when you hire somebody on and you ask them to get a job done and they don't get it done, one of your questions is, hmm, did I hire the right person here? Are they just learning? Are they, or is this, are they not capable of it? Um, like, like is the, was this person able to do what needs to get done here? And do they have the skill set they need? Do I, have I failed in training them? So all that's running through David's head. But with David, he's got this other piece of this was the general that just led a rebellion against him. Is he delaying because he wants Sheba to gain force? Is he delaying because he's screwing it up? So is this defiance or is this incompetence? Because you should be able to muster the men. Sheba's able to do it. So, or he's just thinking, this Amasa is no Joab, because Joab would have got that stuff done. Verse 6, then David said to Abishai, remember that was his number two general in the war, uh, Joab's brother, Abishai. So he's clearly demoted Joab here. He goes to Abishai and says, now Sheba, the son of Bichri, will do us more harm than Absalom. Take your Lord's servants and pursue him, lest he find for himself fortified cities and escape us. David's not making the mistake that Absalom did. Remember, Hushai advised Absalom to like, give David, like gather a bigger army and give David time. But David used that time to assemble his army. He doesn't want Bickery to do the same thing. He wants this to be taken care of. So Joab's men, I love how in verse 7 it just switches. Wait, whose men are these? Are they Amasa's men? Are they Abishai's men? Or really, deep down, these are Joab's men. Joab runs the army. So he just takes over. Joab's men with the Cherethites and the Pelethites and all the mighty men went out after him and they went out to Jerusalem to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. And when they were at the large stone, which is in Gibeon, Amasa came before them. So Abishai and Joab are brothers. Amasa doesn't get the job done. Abishai gets called into David and said, you guys better take care of this. Sheba is on the run. We got to go get him. And then Joab takes over again. Um, and they are going to go out there. And then this interesting thing, they're at the large stone in Gibeon. Um, that's a significant location. We'll come back to that. And then Amasa comes trotting up to the camp like a, failed, like he's supposed to be the general, but he's approaching the general's tent, not being the resider of it. This is a really interesting situation. David's given him that authority, and Joab and Abishai are simply stepping in to do the job because Amasa never did it. And the Cherethites and the Pelethites have been these loyal warriors that have been with David since the beginning, a smaller force, but absolutely they're, they're elite troops. Um, here comes Amasa walking up. 
You picture Abishai and Joab sitting at the tent with a little map on a table in the middle of them. They're plotting out how to do this battle and where to go and what to do. And Amasa comes pulling aside the tent flap and walks in. Abishai and Joab just look up like, oh, you made it. You know, thanks for showing up to a battle you should have been starting. The Gibeonites, this uh, stone was a, a memorial stone. This is the spot Joshua was at. And remember the Gibeonites came up and they tricked Joshua. They had like super old water skins and pretended like they'd traveled from a great distance. And then they got Joshua to make a vow to not hurt them. And then Joshua made the vow and then found out they were lying to him. Yet God expects Israel to keep that vow well after Joshua's gone. And the Gibeonites just wanted to be part of the kingdom of God. And so Joshua said, you can be the water carriers, you can be the woodcutters, but you're going to serve the temple. So this stone was put there as a memorial, which is in Gibeon. This is the same spot. 2 Samuel chapter 2 calls this the field of sharp swords. It's the same location where Joab killed Abner in Ishbosheth's war. Joab has experienced shedding blood on this very location. How do you think this story is going to go? Right? Like, it's, it's just, history's going to repeat itself. Very similar situation. Abner had made peace. David allowed Abner to come in and take a role in the uh, administration of the place. And now, here's Joab with Amasa walking in the door. Amasa's trying to take Joab's job. And this is Joab. Like, we are starting to know the personalities. Now, Joab, verse 8, was dressed in battle armor. Like, he's ready to fight. On it was a belt with a sword fastened in its sheath at his hips. So we know what that looks like. And as he was going out, it fell out. I almost feel like there should be air quotes around that. The sword fell out. And then Joab said to Amasa, Are you in health, my brother? And Joab took Amasa by the beard and with his right hand to kiss him. But Amasa did not notice the sword that was in his hand. So wait, the sword fell out and somehow magically landed in Joab's hand. Like just, it just accidentally was in his hand. And then the whole pulling of the beard thing, like I get images of dwarves and like really, they, and, and then you look it up and it's like, yeah, actually in the ancient world, they'd grow these big long beards. And one of the ways to bring it in for a hug was you grab the other guy's beard and you brought him in for a hug. This is just weirdness. If somebody grabbed my beard, I'd be like, let go of my beard. But they're like, oh, thanks for grabbing my beard. There's a moment, they're having a moment. So he grabs him by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. This would not be a romantic kiss. This would be a welcoming kiss. They still do this in the Middle East, uh, you know, the kiss-kiss thing. But, Am but Amasa did not notice the sword that was in Joab's hand, and he struck him with it in the stomach, and his entrails, his entrails, his guts, poured out all on the ground, on the ground, like this was a full-on opening stomach. This is disgusting. And he did not strike him again, which implies he, he's still alive. Like he opened his stomach, the guts fall out, actually hit the ground, this is messy, and he doesn't strike him again, he just stands there. Thus he died, he died with his guts out on the ground, and then Joab and Abishai, his brother, pursued Sheba, the son of Bichri. So here we go again, this is Joab doing his own thing. Um... Read that when it says like the, the sword fell out and it showed up his hand. The way I'd read this is that it was a sleight of hand. He was hiding the sword. And it's not that Amasa didn't see a giant sword. It's that Joab was hiding it. 
and he came in and he did this thing and he killed him right there. That means that Joab's likely doing this in a tent with all the leaders of the army standing around in the tent. Like Joab's not feeling like this is like the armies of David just got done fighting this guy. So when he comes walking into the tent like he's in charge, Joab's just saying, no, you're not. You will have no part in this army. So which is total defiance against David. But again, that's kind of what Joab does. Joab honors the kingdom more than the anointed king of the kingdom and more than God himself. So a lot of times Joab stuff does stuff that's within the letter of the law. So he's not guilty, doesn't need to go to court over it, but he's also really extending past the boundaries that God has set within that kingdom, which makes it hard for David to lead. At the end of the day, if Joab can disregard David, then so can other people if they want to, like the 10 tribes of Israel, like Sheba. So Joab and Abishai, his brother, pursued Sheba. They're back on this task of taking care of the rebellion. And that's pretty much all we know of Amasa. He died with his guts out, right? Meanwhile, one of Joab's men stood near Amasa and said, whoever favors Joab and whoever is for David, follow Joab. If you're for David, follow Joab. And so they just stand by the dead body of this very short-term general. And, and again, when it says, and said, it's like they kept shouting this out. Like as the armies walked past, they just kept shouting it out. Joab's your general. Joab's your general. If you're for David, you're for Joab. And so they, they do this. Again, this is outside of David's will. But Amasa wallowed in his blood in the middle of the highway. And when the man saw that all the people stood still, like gawkers pause. He moved Amasa from the highway to the field and threw a garment over him, kind of an inglorious burial. And we saw that everyone who came upon him halted. So when he was removed from the highway, all the people went on after Joab to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. They don't have a problem following Joab because they have for 20, 30 years. So this isn't a difficult shift for the armies at all. And he went through all the tribes of Israel to Abel and Beth Maaka and all the Barites so they were gathered together and also went after Sheba. So the army keeps growing as they go. Joab's doing the job that Amasa wasn't doing. And he's building the army. He's doing it as they move forward. He's not giving Sheba a lot of time to establish. Um, and they move forward. Verse 15, Then they came and besieged him in Abel of Beth Maaka, and they cast up a siege mound against the city. And it stood by the rampart. I'm super geeky about this. Siege mounds are really cool. Like in the Middle Ages, they'd build siege towers, little rolling wooden towers that you'd pull up to the wall. They didn't do that in the old days. They would take stones and just start throwing them at the wall, but not as weapons, until the stones would stack up. And then they would just start running in there and throwing dirt with them. So they'd put their armor and stuff on their backs, and as they'd run forward, they'd just throw piles of dirt on it until they literally made a ramp that went up the side of the wall. In some of the archaeological digs of destroyed cities, they still have the ramps sitting there because they're largely made of stone and rubble. Uh, extremely hazardous way to attack a city, um, but also like you're not fighting against the wall anymore. You're just going straight up the ramp. So these siege ramps would start pretty far away and have a fairly low grade, but they were definitely a long-term investment to, to build one of these uh, before you'd get there. So meanwhile... As this happens, they get close to the city and they build this ramp or siege rampart. And all the people who were with Joab battered the wall to throw it down. And then a wise woman cried out from the city, Hear, hear! Please say to Joab, come nearby that I might speak with you. So this city that 
Sheba's hiding in, apparently all the people of Israel didn't come to help Sheba either. That was an exaggeration. Note that about rebellions. Oftentimes, the loudest and angriest rebellions also don't have a lot of people with them. But the perception of a lot of people is what they want to have. Everybody's against David. You caught that in those earlier verses? But if all of everybody is hiding in one city and one of the heads of the city, this woman comes out and says, I'd like to talk to your leader, Sheba's not even the advocate for his own city that he's hiding out in. Like he doesn't even speak for that town. So apparently this rebellion's not as big as Absalom's rebellion. Apparently Sheba's not as big a deal as Sheba thought he was. And I think that's important for us to understand. When the world looks like chaos and people are angry and yelling, it's often not as many people as they like to want us to think it is. That the good people of the world are in the majority. And in this sense, Sheba's now hiding out in a city and does not even come to the wall to represent the people hiding in that city. So this woman comes up. We don't get the name of this woman. Uh, it's another example in the Old Testament that I think the ancient world had a lot less issues with male and female than we do today. We seem to ascribe a lot of uh, sexism in the Bible that uh, this passage just reads like it's totally normal that a woman would represent a city. No problem with that. So we see something kind of different in, the, in that the tone of today versus what reads in the Bible. So she comes up says, I want to speak with Joab. And he answered, I am. Or she, she, he says, come by that I might speak with you. When he had come near to her, the woman said, are you Joab? And he said, I am. And then she said to him, hear the words of your maidservant. And he answered, I'm listening. So listen to me. And she spoke saying, they used to talk in former times saying, they shall surely seek guidance at Abel. And so they would and end disputes. I'm among the peaceable and the faithful in Israel. You seek to destroy a city and a mother of Israel. Why would you swallow up the inheritance of the Lord? This is a great argument. She's a wise woman. You're coming on a city that has been one of the pearls of the empire of, of Israel. Why would you destroy one of the pearls? Why would you wreck the city? And then this idea that warfare is ugly, and if you're going to siege our city, you're going to hurt more than just Sheba's soldiers. It's a brutal thing to siege a city. You starve them out and you, you thirst them out. You cut off their water source and you cut off their food source. Everybody gets hurt in a battle. They, they, they always say don't get into a pissing match with an elephant because everybody gets wet. Right? It's, war is ugly and it's not a good situation. So the wisdom of this woman is incredible. Um, I'm kind of disappointed we don't get her name. But she smartly offers Sheba, instead of a siege, I'll just give you Sheba. Right? That sounds like an easy way to fix this. Let's get rid of the loud, annoying person that's not obeying David. And Joab answered and said, far be it from me, far be it from me that I should swallow up or destroy. I don't want to wreck your city. That is not so. But a man from the mountains of Ephraim, Sheba, the son of Bichri, by name, has raised his hand against the king, against David. Deliver him only and I will depart from the city. Joab's actually, this is really, I can't get my head around Joab. Because there's times where he acts and it seems really rash, like with Amasa, but then there's times when he makes very practical decisions, very reasonable. He's not in rage. There's times when he holds back the army. So when it comes to his leadership of the army, he actually leads the army under the law that we got with Moses back in Numbers. He's, he does, you're not supposed to kill people if you don't have to. If you can identify and get the folks that are the problem and bring them to justice, there doesn't need to be battle. In fact, war should always be capped when the problem has been solved. 
and civilians should not be hurt in this. So Joab's practical. He doesn't want to hurt Israelites. Um, just give me the fool that took action against David. We want this guy. He needs to go. So the woman said to Joab, watch, his head will be thrown to you over the wall. And that is not a figure of speech. Because in verse 22, then the woman in her wisdom went to all the people and they cut off the head of Sheba, the son of Bichri, and threw it out to Joab. Again, this is the ancient world. Welcome to graphic kinds of situations. Uh, oddly enough, this story doesn't often get told in Sunday schools. Like you don't have a flannel board of this. But it would be a hilarious flannel board from an adult perspective. Like you'd have the little head kind of come off the little person and it would fly out over the wall and the kids would all be mortified by it. Then he blew a trumpet and they withdrew from the city, every man from his tent. So Joab returned to the king at Jerusalem. Fairly precise end to a civil war. It was really just one guy. One guy was the problem. This is a little different than Absalom's battle. And, but this one guy thought he could rile up the 10 tribes when there's discontent at the bottom of it, it only takes one person to rile up that discontent. So the problem with the 10 tribes hasn't been dealt with, as we're going to see going forward. But Sheba has been dealt with. So Sheba finds that when he fights God's people, it's kind of a, not a winning route to take. Uh, there's loyalty all over the place. He thought he was safe in this city, but the city itself rose up against him. The enemies of God really have nowhere to hide. And I think that's something that as a church we need never forget. That when we follow a living king, we have nothing to be afraid of, but the enemies of God have absolutely nowhere to hide. When God's people rise up and do their thing, there's nothing that stops that. This is an image of everyone has a Sheba in, in their life, I think. In fact, in our own hearts, we may have a part of our heart that's rebellious, and it really has nowhere to hide. If we're in the word and we're with other believers and we're worshiping and we're praying and we're fellowshipping, that part of you that's in sin has nowhere to hide. And it may think it's hidden away or it, that it won't be found out. But at some point, I think the Holy Spirit on us needs to take that sin in our life, chop its head off and throw it outside the wall. Get rid of it. And so you get this image of just purging this stuff out of the God's people out of the nation of Israel. Um, and, and, and in some sense, you, you sacrifice that person in order to save the city. Are you going to lose your head or are you going to lose your heart? Which one of those things? So those images start to be part of the Old Testament. David's government officers get listed. This is the end of 2 Samuel for all practical purposes. We saw the beginning of Samuel, chapters 1 through 8, as David the anointed king. At the end of chapter 8, it told us who his administration was. Then for chapters 9 through 20, we get the sinful legacy of David. David as a human fleshy king, he's not the Messiah. And at the end of chapter 20, we get his administration at the end too. So that two sections of Samuel are really the kingship of David. And then we're going to get these appendixes afterwards, six of them. Uh, and there's no obvious kind of rhyme or reason to these. They're just kind of wrap-up things that get added at the end of 2 second, of Samuel. So here's the administration. Joab was over the army of Israel. Okay, we just got that story. So at the end of the day, Joab's in charge of the army. Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was over the Cherethites and the Pelethites. 23 is interesting. David has tried to supplant Joab twice, and both of them got killed by Joab. So in relenting on that, he takes the Cherethites and Pelethites and he gives them leadership. He splits the army. 
And this is where, like, in a lot of nations today, especially in Judeo-Christian countries, we split the armed forces. And there's a reason for that. It's so you don't get generals taking over the kingdom. So in America, we, we get, went crazy with this. We got Army, Air Force, Marines. Am I missing one? Navy. That was, I did that on purpose, Paul. <laughs> Coast Guard. So we split our military in a bunch of directions, and there's a reason for that. It's so that the branch of the military never gets stronger than the people, and they can never do that. So David does, this is like the first time in history he splits his army in verse 23. So Joab doesn't get the elite warriors. That keeps Joab in check at least a little bit. Adoram was in charge over revenue, the finance ministry. Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was the recorder, who we're probably reading right now. Shiva was the scribe. Uh, the scribe's responsibility was to continue to rewrite the word of God because it was on papyrus that would get old. So the head scribe would be in charge of a whole division of Levites, and their job was to keep that record and all the other records um, viable and readable. Zadok and Abiathar were the priests, and Ira the Jerite was the chief minister under David, probably the head of household, like chief of staff. Um, so we have the administration there. It's interesting how David sets up his kingdom. Uh, we've got evidence here, and I think this is impressive, that the Davidic throne adds to the, the book of Le Leviticus. Leviticus sets up the priesthood. David adds this entire wing of the priesthood that's dedicated to singing and worship in the temple. So he adds song to the mix. And it's kind of David's big contribution. He puts Asaph uh, and of the Korathites in charge of writing music and doing songs, which is why as we go through the stories of David, we keep referring to the Psalms. Because David would give his lyrics to people and then turn them into things that would be sung in the temple. So 2 Samuel chapter 21, we get these wrap-ups. There's a famine in the nation, and David has to seek out God in the famine. Verse 1 now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year, and David inquired of the Lord. This is likely early in the kingship of David, but the way 2 Samuel is set up is the anointed perfect king through chapter 8 and the sinful fallen king that has to deal with all those problems. This story is an odd story that they chose not to include in the first part because they kind of, I think, wanted to keep that true to being the anointed king, right? To doing it God's way. But this is a, there was this famine, so even David, even before his sin, had to deal with these situations that were from Saul's kingship that had to be made right. So it takes about three years, and David eventually sees that uh, that rain that's not coming is maybe not just a weather pattern. Maybe it's the Lord doing something too. So David inquires of the Lord. And the, the persistent weather is what gets, you know, a year of famine, you think it's been a bad year. Two years of famine, you'd think he would go to the Lord, but he doesn't. So this isn't exactly like perfect anointed kingship here. Like, why did it take him three years to go to the Lord to figure this out? Odds are he goes to the Lord and we're using Urim and Thummim, like he's talking to the priest, but he, the Lord answers. It doesn't say how. It is because of Saul and his bloodthirsty house because he killed the Gibeonites. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. And now the Gibeonites were not of the children of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. The children of Israel had sworn protection to them, but Saul had sought to kill them in his zeal for the children of Israel and Judah. There's no record of this other than the passage we just read. It's this event that happens early on. Uh, 
God is looking at the bloodthirstiness of Saul, and the word bloodthirsty is likely referring to the law. If someone is unjustly murdered, that blood has to be atoned for. You have to deal with the sin. Here's the problem. How do you deal with the sin when the killer is dead? So Saul's gone. It's disappeared. What do you do with that? So again, this is the story. The Gilbianites came. They snookered Joshua. He made a covenant with them. And God expects that covenant to be kept. And then Saul broke the covenant. And he goes on a genocide. This is kind of arguably one of the first instances of racism, like active genocidal racism. Saul goes on this mission to kill these folks. Um, and it says because he killed the Gibeonites in his zeal for the children of Israel and Judah, odds are Saul was killing Gibeonites in order to win favor for his kingship because he's just killing them. But he's killing them. It's especially wrong because they were sworn protection. They were to be given to Nathan. So they're, the Gibeonites are Nathanites. They're the, they're the servants of the temple. So he's actually, they would have settled in a town called Nod, a refuge city in that part of the, the nation. And they would have been serving in this refuge city as water carriers and woodcutters and whatnot. And Saul goes in and starts killing them. And as they get spread out throughout the nation, it implies that he's going all over the country seeking to kill them. So he's killing the given ones or the ones that are dedicated to God's service. Saul seeks to do this outside of God's will and for his own thirst for blood. So God's defending his people by doing this. In fact, God has intervened by changing the weather to bring attention to this great injustice that had been done a generation ago. So there's a reconciliation that has to happen because that murder can't just be left undealt with. It has to be made right. Matthew 5, 37, let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more of this comes from evil. The vows that come out of this, the evil just keeps going. So God doesn't give them all the details. We don't get all the details. All we know is that Saul unjustly killed these people and David calls in the Gibeonites for a conversation. I think that's wise. Let's bring them in and hear from the Gibeonites. Therefore, David said to the Gibeonites, what shall I do for you? And with what shall I make atonement that you may bless the inheritance of the Lord? Again, David understands this is an issue of the law. Gibeonites were murdered. How can I atone for that? Saul's gone. I can't just put Saul's head on a platter for you. I have to do, like, what else can I do? And the Gibeonites said to him, we will have no silver or gold from Saul or his house, nor shall you kill any man in Israel for us. So he said, whatever you say, I'll do for you. And this is an interesting interchange. And again, it's kind of an appendix, but it's an appendix that's here, I think, inspired, so we can learn something about atonement. The word atonement there is kafar. It's the covering. It's the same idea as the covering on the Ark of the Covenant. So it's this idea of what can I do to cover this sin, to kind of make it right again. And again, the goal is that you may bless the inheritance of the Lord. David's fully recognizing the Gibeonites are a blessing. And this is the thing where when, the Jewish, when you think that Israel is only Jewish people, you're really mistaking or not reading the Old Testament. Israel included non-Jewish people as part of the nation. There were, from the very beginning, leaving Egypt, there was the multitudes that came with the Jewish people. So it's a mixed nation. But in, even in mixed nations, sometimes we humans go after each other based on arbitrary groups that we define, right? And America is just as guilty of this as any other country. I don't want to beat up America or Grant will get mad at me. Nations go after, we find ways to find differences between each other. And when you can identify differences between us, people fight when you identify and amplify those differences. 
And here we got Jewish people going after Gibeonite people. And God doesn't like this. At the end of the day, this kind of people group going after people group, it's bad and it's evil. And I think this is a great passage to understand what that looks like. It's not a good thing. And we shouldn't just brush it under the rug because this would be easy to brush under the rug. And God's saying, you don't get to brush this under the rug. You must deal with this. So here's the other thing. When Saul does this to promote and advance himself, who were the people that would go out and kill the Gibeonites? Odds are it's people in Saul's household. So he has a number of sons and princes and people in his household that benefited from killing Gibeonites because you take their stuff. And so David's like, how do I make this right? You've got Saul's household having benefited from these killings. And, we're gonna, and the Gibeonites, I think, are really a, a, kind of amazing here. We don't want silver or gold, though they were probably deserved it. We don't want you to kill any man for Israel. The number of murders that would have to happen to account for any kind of slaughter of the Gibeonites, this would be another mass slaughter. They're saying, we don't need another mass slaughter. So the eye for eye principle is not being applied. Well, I don't like the Old Testament. It says eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, except for when it doesn't, right? There's judgment being made here. We're not going to have a second mass slaughter to make the first mass slaughter right. What are we going to do? Verse 5, then they answered the king, as for the man who consumed us and plotted against us that we should be destroyed from remaining in any of the territories of Israel, the Gibeonites were spread out, let seven men of his descendants be delivered to us and we will hang them before the Lord in Gibeah of Saul, whom the Lord chose. So the king says, I will give them. And the king says, I will give them. So it's, I think this is a really interesting, like this is a cool passage. The law says for any given murder, the murderer needs to die. But what happens when it's mass murder? How do you do this? So the fact that they were tried to be consumed, the word consumed there in the Hebrew in verse 5 implies it was a widespread genocidal effort to get rid of these folks, right? To make Israel pure in some weird, sick way. So Saul's family would have benefited from this enormously. Uh, it would have been carried forward by his house and his family. Numbers 35 says you can't take money for murder, which means the Gibeonites knew the law. They served the temple. They knew the law really well. You can't make murder right by paying for it. Or if you do that, then the rich people get to kill folks, right? And if you can just pay your way out of the court system, you have an unjust society getting formed. And people get angry about that. So here's Numbers 35. You want to turn there with me? I think this is cool to see how the law is getting applied. Numbers 35, it's towards the beginning of your Bible. It's right after Numbers 34. I just think that's funny. I'm sorry. Gibeonites are going to submit to the law here. And so it's good for us to know it. And, I, and again, I think this is how these stories got used with little Jewish kids, right? The rabbis would bring them up saying, what do you do with this situation? How do you make it right? Are we all there? Numbers 35? Okay, go to verse 30, and we get the law on murder and how this should work. If anyone kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death on the evidence of witnesses, but no person shall be put to death on the testimony of one witness. So when God says the Gibeonites were unjustly killed, that's one witness. Notice that David called in the Gibeonites to also bear witness. That's two witnesses. So the idea that there needs to be two witnesses. Then verse 31, Moreover, you shall accept no ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death, but he shall be put to death. You can't take money in replacement for the life. 
So the Gibeonites know this and they refuse any kind of money compensation because that doesn't satisfy justice under God's law. Verse 32, you shall accept no ransom for him who has fled to his city of refuge that he may return to dwell in the land before the death of the high priest. Okay, you don't have refuge when you're a murderer and there's two witnesses that verify it. So you don't get the city of refuge. You shall not pollute the land in which you live for blood pollutes the land and no atonement can be made for the land for the blood that is shed in it except by the blood of the one who shed it. Three years of famine, the land's polluted. God's cursing it because God wants to see this made right. In his kingdom, murder isn't going to fly. Then in verse 34 of Numbers, you shall not defile the land in which you live, in the midst of which I dwell. The reason Israel's special in this is because God dwells in Israel. For I, the Lord, dwell in the midst of the people of Israel. You have to deal with murder. It's a sickness in your country, and spiritually, it has much greater effects than just the person who died. It has the effect of cursing a whole people group. When you have a nation where murderers go free, that affects everybody in that nation because murderers go free. It's horrible, and it's a great evil that stands out. So the, what they're asking for here, and I think you can go back to our chapter, 2 Samuel 21, they ask for seven men of his descendants. So Saul is dead, but his blood is still alive. His household still has people in it that have benefited from these murders. So the blood of Saul will still atone for those deaths, but it has to be from Saul's household. They don't want to be killing a bunch of people of the nation of Israel, but we do want to deal with this death with Saul's descendants because that's the law. And their blood will make this right. Instead of person for person killing, they ask for the number seven, which is the number of perfection, perfection divine perfection. Three is kind of completeness, but seven is divine perfection. They ask for divine perfection from Saul's household to atone for all of these deaths. This is really interesting. It's an application of the law that brings a principle to bear. The king wronged them, the king will redeem them, or at least his successors, his heirs will redeem them. And they're going to do it in Saul's hometown, verse 6. They're going to do the hangings in Gibeah of Saul. So they're going to do it in his hometown, which is a display of justice. The point of the display isn't to be brutal barbarians. The point of the display is to never have murder happen again and to show that it's wrong. Here's what happens to killers. And likely Saul was sitting in his throne room while these sons and grandsons are out doing the killing. So they ask for these people to be brought to justice. There's some critique of hanging people. This is so brutal, it's horrible. Uh, hanging people uh, has been carried out in world history right up until the 1900s. Like, it's not a form of execution that is that old. Uh, it, it's been around for a very long time. Uh, remember the point of this graphic sin of murder? The consequence is a graphic consequence of hanging. It's a visible thing. It's fair in the sense that from our sentiments, we think, well, any kind of like execution is unjust. I get that. But it's in the ancient world, this is also extremely graceful because they're not avenging life for life. They're doing what's called substitutionary or propitiation for the sin. Now follow me on this. They wanted to be part of Israel. They don't want to have eternal feuds. They wanted to go back to being the Nathanim, the Nathans. 
They wanted to go back to service. So instead of asking for, for life for life, they follow the Mosaic law, but they substitute thousands of lives for a number of perfection seven, a perfect divine substitution, right? So this starts to explain the story of, of Shammai, of Brent Benjamin. He's all mad and wanting to rebel because this happened in their history. So if you're of the house of Benjamin and David comes in and says, I need seven of Saul's sons and I'm going to execute them all, the house of Saul probably doesn't like David very much. So this is an interesting story to bring in at this point because it would have been like, oh, well, that's why all this stuff happened. But I think the writers of 2 Samuel didn't want us to attribute those things to this story. They wanted us to attribute the things that happened to David to David's sin. He was responsible for all these things. Right? But this is part of that narrative as it gets added at the end. These seven men build the theme of substitutionary atonement. It's a really important theme for us Christians, right? The consequence of sin doesn't have to match the sin, sin for sin. I used to think if there's billions of sins in the world, how did Jesus pay for billions of sins when he's only one human? And the answer is substitutionary atonement. The law doesn't require one person to be punished for every single sin especially if that number is perfect or divine perfection. So where seven humans represent divine perfection, actual divine perfection in Jesus is the real thing. It's not just a representation of divine perfection. It's the real deal. So you have this great sin, kind of a nameless, without a time period, very vague, being in there, and then to the letter of Mosaic law, it gets accounted for by a divinely perfect seven people that are of the blood of Saul, which, and if Jesus, it's, that's why it's so important that he's of the blood of humanity, that he represents humanity because he is the blood of humanity. He was fully human. So it's just, it's divine perfection, it's in the family, and it's public. The hanging happens publicly so everybody can see. It's not in secret. It's not in a little hidden room with golden tablets. It's out in public where everybody can see it. And there's no doubt about what's going on. So theoretically, these seven sons of the king are a divinely perfect number. Literally, Jesus is the perfect son of God. One divinely perfect son of God, of the king. So you get this great image. And then the king, in verse 7, spares Mephibosheth the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, because of the Lord's oath that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. Mephibosheth is off the table because David's not going to break one vow in order to keep another one. Also, Mephibosheth was lame. He was not part of these killings. He wouldn't have been part of that wing of Saul's household. He wouldn't have been used for this. So David's going to keep this oath, and he's also going to renew the oath of Joshua. Again, you could argue, well, David didn't make that oath. Joshua did. But that's not how God sees it at all. David represents the kingship of Israel. And that kingship is an eternal throne. So while he's sitting on the throne, he actually represents the country. So even though Saul did this great evil, it's David that has to amend for this evil from Saul's household. And in the same way, Jesus the king sits on the throne of Judah, right? And he atones for sin from that position because he represents a house that's of the world. So you really get a lot of these principles around Messiah built into this story. And the people that are spared are the people that are innocent or that God has vowed to protect, like Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth's a viable candidate for this punishment. But he's going to be kept from the punishment because he made an oath with the king himself. 
I love that because I'm a sinner. I deserve punishment, but I've made a covenant with Jesus Christ. And because of that covenant, Jesus will not pick me for that punishment. He's going to overlook me when he starts punishing. So it's the very same principle on which we trust our salvation, that God is faithful in this. He'll be faithful with us too. And when it comes time for punishment, he's going to overlook our sins just like he overlooks any benefit Mephibosheth got in this situation. And likewise, when it comes to morality and perfection, I'm kind of lame too, right? I've failed. I'm not perfect. Uh, so you have this really, I think, kind of an interesting story singled out all by itself. Verse 8, so the king took Armani and Mephibosheth, the two sons of Rizpah, that's a different Mephibosheth, the daughter of Aea, whom she bore to Saul, and the five sons of Michal, the daughter of Saul. That's interesting. David and Michal were married. This is his ex-wife, right? So apparently she got remarried and has more children, five kids, whom she brought up for Adriel, the son of Barzillai, the Meholahite, Thite. Wow, you guys can try those when you get home tonight. And he delivered them up into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them on the hill before the Lord. So they fell, all seven together, and they were put to death in the days of harvest, in the first days, in the beginning of the barley harvest. This is a representative group that gets to be there. Um, Jonathan's family is spared from this, but there's other descendants. It's maybe one of the reasons Mephibosheth went into hiding. Whereas this could have happened fairly early on when David took the kingship, right? And Mephibosheth just took off and ran. So they do this before the Lord. The fact that the Lord ends the famine is that the Lord has approved this. And that's really important too. When these kinds of substitutionary atonement kind of sacrifices are made, it's important that God does or says something that says, I approve, it's taken care of. And under the ultimate judge says, I accept the substitution. This is why it's so important that Jesus rose from the dead. It's that it's God's affirmation that he accepted Jesus as a divinely perfect sacrifice for the sins of the world. Right? So in the same sense that happens here and that the famine ends, it's done before the Lord. And the rain comes here in a few months. This is also God's way to root out future rebellions and trouble for David's kingdom. He's using this whole situation to get rid of the house of Saul, at least to the degree of the people willing to murder. Um, however merciful this is, it's still pretty ugly, right? It's not pretty. So in that sense, the same thing applies to Jesus. However merciful, gracious, and wonderful the cross was, it's still fairly ugly to look at. And it's a hard passage there, and it's a hard passage here. So the king called. That's interesting. In verse 2, the king called the Gibeonites to come where? Where's David's throne at? This is my check to see if everybody's still with me. What? No, at this point he's in Jerusalem, right? Thanks, Grant. I appreciate that you're trying. So he called the Gibeonites to Jerusalem, and in these verses, he brings these people in and he gives them to the hands of the Gibeonites who are standing here, and they hang them on the hill before the Lord. So when they hang them on this hill before the Lord, they said they were going to go back to the city and hang them back in Saul's city to do this, right? So they're doing that process. Remember, Saul's city is fairly close to Bethlehem. So they hang them on this hill. 
Deuteronomy 21 says, The body shall not be on the tree all night, but thou shalt in any wise bury him that day. For he that is hanged is accursed of the Lord, but the land shall not be defiled by the Lord God who gives you for an inheritance. When we hang people, that's a curse. So you leave them on the, somewhere between heaven and earth, and you don't have them touch the earth because they're cursed when they're hanging on a tree. So that image of hanging them up there and putting them up for people to see, they're going to leave them on that tree because they are cursed, right? So if you don't want them to be cursed, you'd take them down. But if you're hanging on the tree, you're cursed by God, and you don't bring them down because the Lord will be defiled, and that's why they would not leave them up all night. It's why Jesus got taken off the cross right away after he died. So the same thing's true here. They're going to hang these people, only they're going to leave them up until the rain comes. And the rain coming says God's accepted that, that sacrifice, really. It's pretty ugly. Now, Ritzbah, the daughter of Ahad, took the sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock, from the beginning of the harvest until late rains poured on them from heaven. And she did not allow the birds of the air to rest on them by day, nor the beasts of the field by night. She's basically protecting the bodies because she's waiting for God to accept this sacrifice as atonement. So this is kind of neat in that Rizpah kind of steps in and just takes this role um, and is going to protect these bodies until they're accepted by the Lord. We get a picture of kind of what sin does to people. It curses us, it's sad, it's public, it's recorded, right? It's up there for people to see, so our sins become an example so other people don't sin. Uh, these are warnings. And Saul's sin comes with a greater responsibility because he was responsible. So Ritzpah, her name means pavement or foundation. She shoes the critters in order to honor the sacrifice that, that God has. And she keeps watch over the bodies. What kind of God would allow this kind of evil? The answer to that is none. Like, God doesn't allow the evil. God allows free will and judgments coming for the decisions that people make. And it's a, it's a tough concept for people to get their head around, but we can't believe as, as Christians that our sin will, ever, will not go undealt with, right? Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. That should be a gift that we're so gratitude for we want to jump up and down. Thank you, dear Lord, that I don't have to hang on a tree and account for the sins that I have and the sins that my family has had. Thank goodness we don't have to do that. So the Son of God has redeemed us from the curse of the law, Galatians 3.13, being made a curse for us because he hung on a tree. For it is written, cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree. That's true here too. These people are cursed. Where would the world be without graphic warnings like this? If God wasn't so blatant in these biblical warnings, where would we be when it comes to sin as a planet? These things are meant to be a deterrent, and we should, we should not wait a second to get ourselves right with Jesus. Right? We should be so grateful that we don't have to pay these kinds of punishments. The rain pours on them from heaven, and God accepts the, the sacrifice. Justice is satisfied. He is going to move on, and, and the Gibeonites are ready to move on too because they were the ones that said this is what will make it right for our people. That ends this kind of internal warfare, or it should end it. Um, and Ritzpah, you just get this image of humility and service, that these sacrifices that are made should be honored. They should be protected and guarded. It's why we wear cross necklaces. Like Christians have turned this image of torture and curse and punishment into something we wear around our necks. 
because we honor it and we appreciate the gift and the sacrifice. We appreciate that one divinely perfect sacrifice is a propitiation for all of our sins. And God's not going to go through the sin for sin, eye for eye thing with the eternal consequences of it. Thank God that we don't have to do that. So we celebrate and we honor it. And I think that Ritzba is just a beautiful image of kind of watching after that gift and, and tending to it. Then you get to verse 11. David was told what Ritzbah, the daughter of Ayah, the concubine of Saul, had done. And then David went and took the bones of Saul. Like, I think he sees Ritzbah and he goes, oh, that was really sweet. That was really gracious. Like, this is a horrible situation. And he sees how she honors these body. And then look, David joins in and does even more to honor the family of Saul. Then David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan, his son, from the men of Jabesh-Gilead, who had stolen them from the street of Bashan, where the Philistines had hung them up, after the Philistines had struck down Saul and Gilboa. So he brought up the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan, his three sons from, and his sons from there, and they gathered the bones of those who had been hanged, and they buried the bones of Saul and Jonathan, his son, in the country of Benjamin and Zelah, in the tomb of Kish, his father, and so they performed all the king commanded after the God-heeded prayer in the land. The tomb is still there. You can go visit it. Where there's no joy in this situation, it's what God demanded to deal with the sin. The sin has to get dealt with. And David gives so much honor to Saul, God's anointed, as he gives the same honor to Saul as he gives to Jonathan. Right? They're both atoned. They're both part of this process. And he gives dignity to their burial showing the entire nation that David holds no grudge against the family of Saul. They did what they had to do to deal with the sins of Saul's family, and now they've dealt with it. And he honors them. Again, I think this is part of where he gets Mephibosheth set up in Jerusalem with him, and he honors that family and, and gives them a household. In verse 10, it rains, and God has heeded the prayer for the land. After that, God heeded the prayer of the land. He, he, he accepts the sacrifice. Here's the lesson. When David's prayers aren't initially answered, he goes to God to deal with it and he finds there's sin to deal with. If we in our spiritual walk find a season of famine in our life, one of the possible reasons for that is that there's sin in our life. And we go to God saying, root it out and show me where I got to deal with this stuff. Right? Only one of possible situations there. The Holy Spirit to dwell in us and through us, really God demands a clean vessel. We need to be washed by the blood of the lamb or we're not going to see a lot of fruit in our life. When we're not following the will of the Holy Spirit, we're actually creating a situation where we're probably going to have some spiritual famine. And we got to deal with that. It's a tough situation. We'll keep cruising. Here's another appendix just kind of attached to the end of the book, noting some heroic deeds. The giants of the Philistines are destroyed. Again, we get these additions that are wonderful, like they're really cool theological images. When the Philistines were at war with Israel, so this is earlier in the kingship, David and his servants with him went down and fought against the Philistines. So this is pre-Bathsheba. And David grew faint. And then Ishbi Benab, that's a great name, Ishbi Benab, who is one of the sons of the giant, the weight of whose spear was 300 shekels, who was bearing a new sword, thought he could kill David. I will kill David. But Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, came to his aid and struck the Philistine and killed him. And then the men of David swore to him, saying, you shall go out no more with us to battle, lest you quench the lamp of Israel. David, you're getting old. So this is after Bathsheba then, right? You're getting too old, David. You can't keep up anymore. 
The Philistines had yet uh, war with Israel. This is an extended record of some of these battles. But we're going to deal with these giants. Verse 15 says giant. The word is Rephaim in the Hebrew. Uh, we've seen that word before in use with Goliath. Uh, but it is a, a consistent biblical claim that there were a race of people walking the earth called giants, Nephilim. Uh, there's a, a new book out on this right now and a record of the Nephilim. We'll get into that in a little bit. 300 shekels is about eight pounds. So that's a massive sword, not a sword that an average human arm could carry and wield very easily. So not even Tom could carry and wield an eight-pound sword. Most swords are like two to three pounds, three pounds. Grant's shrugging his shoulders. So a very large group of people, they're scary people, and they're dying out as Israel grows. So we've seen references to them often throughout Israel's history. Um, he's bearing a new sword. The word sword there is not actually there in the original Hebrew. So it says he was bearing a new thought in the Hebrew. And, and I hope in your Bibles the word sword is in italics, right? It's not actually there. Um, he was bearing a new thought. This thought is he could kill David, right? So he's got this idea in his head that he's going to go and take him out. Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, is remember the brother of Joab? This is probably where he kind of rose in the ranks a little bit. When we fail, when David's spirit fails, God raises up other champions. This is a great image of these giants. It's not all on David to take these giants out. And throughout David's kingship, other people will step in to do it. And that's what this next passage is all about. David grows faint, and the people say, you're getting really old, buddy. You need to stay home. Um, and, and, and at this point, that's not the same as staying home out of laziness. It's staying home because they really want their king to age and be the light of Israel. Uh, it's very different from just staying home because you want to hang out with Bathsheba. So there's an acceptable age of kind of downpacing your service a little bit. The body doesn't drown when the head's above water, and that's kind of what they're saying with David. Israel stays afloat as long as your head is above the water. We don't need you out fighting 10, 12, 14-foot giants anymore, David. And there's still some of these giants to fight. So you get this image of Abishai stepping in, saving the day, um, this image that really David needs support and he needs help. And that's a good image, and it's a wonderful thing. The body doesn't suffer, I think, when the body works together well. When you see two or more are better than one because they have good reward for their labors, Ecclesiastes 4. For if they fall, one will lift up his companion. And here we got David falling, and Abishai steps in to save him. He's the lamp of Israel. David's the lamp. Jesus is the lamb. Just a one-letter difference. David's to Israel, the light of Israel, and Jesus is the light of the world, right? Again, you get these kind of comparisons. So three more giants are going to go down in the next few verses. This is an epilogue that Israel is ending the race of giants in their part of the world. So now it happened afterwards that there was again a battle with the Philistines at Gob. And then Shibakai, the Hushahithite, killed Saph, the one who, who was one of the sons of the giant, and again, there was a war at Gob with the Philistines where Elhanan, the son of Jair Oregem, the Bethlehemite, killed the brother of Goliath, the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. Again, they're saying just how big these people were. Yet again, there was a war at Gath. So yet again, yet again, yet again, now it happened. Um, they're just listing off these giants that got killed. Yet again, there was a war with Gath, and there was a man of great stature who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot. 
24 in number, that's to make sure, I like how they add it all up for us, that's to make sure we know this is not metaphorical. This is a historical account. They counted fingers and toes and then gave us a total. Like this was an actual person with some kind of mutation. And he also was born a giant. So when he defied Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shimei, David's brother, killed him. So we got five total giants. Listen to this. 1 Samuel 17, verse 40. He took his staff from his hand and he chose from him five smooth stones out of the brook. This is David. Before he fights Goliath, picks five stones out of the brook. And he put them in a shepherd's bag, which he had, even in a script. And in his sling was in his hand and he drew near to the Philistine. Why did he pick up five stones? Right? These are the generals of the Philistines. These are the heads. They put these big guys up in the front of their armies. Picks up five stones. I say, why did he pick five stones? Because he's a, first of all, he's with total confidence that he can nail this guy with one shot, and he does. He is a slinger. He's precise. He was a shepherd for years. Goliath's coming at full speed. He knows he only has time for one shot. He knows he can hit the shot, and he knows he's got the Lord God Almighty with him and says so much to Saul before he goes into the fight. Why did he pick up five stones? Is that faithlessness that he picked up five stones? Or is it that there's five giants that need killing? And J David's going to take them out. Part of why God was telling the Israelites to kill the Canaanites is because a lot of these Canaanite tribes were led by these giant figures, right? They didn't go into the Amalekites because the Amalekites were led by giants, Nephilim. Remember, they, they were fearful to take Jerusalem. And Caleb was like, I'll take Jerusalem. I don't care about these giants. But Jerusalem was a city of giants. They were led by these giant figures. And the Nephilim were first mentioned way back in Genesis that this was the fallen angels of God that came to earth and mated with the human women of earth and they created these mutated, genetically changed beings called Nephilim. That's hard to, that sounds like mythology, right? The giants were feared by Israel. They keep coming up even in historic texts. Oh, I'm sorry, Genesis 6-4. There were giants in the earth in those days. And also after that, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, they bare them children, and they became mighty men, which were of old the men of renown. They were the leaders of these people and these people groups. So how big were they? Numbers 13-33. There we saw giants. There be giants. The sons of Anak, which had come, become giants, and we were in our own sight like grasshoppers, and so we were in their sights. They were significantly bigger than the race of humans. Okay, that's two. Their names varied. They had different names for different tribes. They were spreading all over the planet. Deuteronomy 2.11, which were also accounted giants as the Anakims, but the Moabites called them Emims. And then in verse 20, that accounted the land of giants. Giants dwelt therein in the times of old, and the Ammonites called them Zamzumims. So they're called Emims and Zamzumims, Anak, Jerobites, giants. They were spread out and they were seeding and mating with people in all of these tribes. This is part of what God wanted to see an end to. If Satan could come in and change the genetic code of humanity, it will be hard for a seed of Eve to be a purely human being and actually save the world from sin. If you can genetically mutate the human race, it will be hard to bring about a Messiah. And maybe that's what Satan was doing. I don't know. Point being, the Bible has brought these creatures up a number of times, and I think it's really cool to look at them. They were thinned out by Moses and by Joshua. Joshua 13, 12. The remnants of giants, for Moses smote them and cast them out. 
part of what Moses did in warfare and part of what Joshua did in warfare was they were killing these giants whenever they found them, right? They were mutated. Um, they were the last holdout city in Judah. The border city went up by the valley of the son of Hinnom into the south side of the Jebusites. The same is the city of Jerusalem. And the border went up to the top of the mountain that lies there before the valley of Hinnom westward, which is at the end of the valley of the giants northward. The spot where Jerusalem sits was called the Valley of the Giants before David made it his kingdom and his throne. A giant then and giant killing is part of David's ministry. Giant killing also happens to be part of most major cultures mythology around the entire planet, including Native Americans and Native South Americans. Right? This is part in every major tribe. For being a history teacher, I feel betrayed that this was not in our history books. This is a kind of cool part about American history. Not that Nephilim are cool, they're actually quite evil. But being somebody who likes history, the fact that there's so much evidence of a race of Nephilim on the earth is stunning. And the degree to which it's been not told is likewise stunning. So is this fantasy? Well, we now have an encyclopedia of ancient giants. It has hundreds, over 800 accounts around the planet of bones of giants being discovered, found, photographed, and, and archaeologically cataloged. It's in an encyclopedia of North America. There are distinct waves of giant humans that migrated North America. Quote, as early as 7,000 BC, strange people arrived on the North American continent and the shore, on the shores of gigantic-sized Neanderthal-looking skulls. A by this is a secular author, by the way. That, that's why they're saying Neanderthal. A persistent legend exists within Native Americans of a people who came to trade and mine copper in the upper Great Lakes. They left an indelible mark on the landscape of the Ohio Valley with their large burial mounds and earthworks aligned to solar, lunar, and stellar events. The discovery of giant humans in North America is the result of pouring over 10,000 state, county, and township histories as one of the largest genealogical libraries in America. Hundreds of accounts, additional accounts, were found in newspaper artic articles of early settlers in the Americas. They would find these mounds, dig them up, and find 14-foot-tall skeletons. So the, when you hear about the Ohio with earthworks and things like that, go to page two. Read what they found under those earthworks. It's fascinating. The result is the largest compilation of giant human skeletons discovered in North America in print. 888 human giants have been discovered in all 47 contiguous United States, including here in Minnesota. <laughs> this makes history kind of interesting, doesn't it? That's a pretty big evidence base. Burial mounds, skeletons, paintings, and here's the thing. The paintings that were made often had 12 fingers and 12 toes. And here's the other odd thing, they often had red hair. Most cultures around America see red hair as a sign of strength or power. I just think this stuff's fascinating. You guys can think I'm a conspiracy person, that's okay with me. Um, the six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot is recorded 3,000 years ago in 2 Samuel. Yet we see it on cave paintings in North America all over the planet. The recent work by L.A. Marzulli does DNA research on some of these skulls, and they find that the human DNA has been manipulated to be non-human DNA in these skulls. They're a different race, an actual different being. However, they're consistently mutated as though they're a different race entirely. The unique and consistent mutations of the DNA has been found across all of these places when they study them. 
The story shows something then, that David starts with Goliath, but he has four more stones that need dealing with. Here we are at the end of 2 Samuel, and David didn't finish the work, but the people he trained and raised up do finish the work of taking out the other four Philistine giants. Kind of interesting. On a less creepy note, verse 22, I know you're, go look it up and look at the pictures. It's kind of cool. These four were brought, were born to the giant in Gath. They're referring to Goliath there. So Goliath had four sons and these four are all taken out. And they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. So all four of these people didn't die by the hand of David, but they fell by the hand of his servants, which is under his kingship and rule. It was part of the work that David was given to do by God. Get rid of these giants. Get them off the planet. The focus then is that that kind of helps us see a little perspective on what Dave's doing. I can almost see why the authors left this out of the regular narrative because it's kind of distracting, isn't it? And if you're trying to show us the anointed kingship and the fallen kingship, this story just doesn't seem to quite fit. Um, also, you've got some cool stuff going on here with the names. Goliath means splendor. Ishbohenibo means dwelling on high. Saf just means tall. And then the last two don't even get a name. One's the brother of Goliath and one's just some guy, right? So this strength of Goliath goes from splendor to some guy. And you can see the trajectory of the giants through the names that get used. The opposite is true too. The killers of the giants have a really interesting name thing, okay? Again, this puts me in Chuck Missler category, but I love this stuff. And I'm going to finish on this, so you got to follow with me. Get your notes ready. The word David means beloved, right? David kills the first giant. He's beloved, right? The second one is Abishai. The name of Abishai means my father's gift or dad's gift, right? He's the nephew of David, the next generation stepping in to help finish the work. Then you get Shibakai, which means weaver, or this idea that God's weaving this all together. And he's making this thing connect and happen. You with me so far? The fourth killer of a giant is Elhanan. Uh, Elhanan, who's from the town of Bethlehem. You see how they go out of their way to say that this guy's from Bethlehem? Again, here's this weird little shepherd town getting mentioned again in the Old Testament. It's like God just putting a bunch of arrows around Bethlehem. Look over here when you're looking for Messiah. So the name Elhanan means God gave. So if you got weaving, it's almost like God gave this. And the word Bethlehem means the house of bread, right? So God gave from the house of bread. And then Jonathan, whose name means Yeshua has given. Okay, you got all these? So if you put those names together in a line, beloved, father's gift, weaving, God gives, Yeshua is given. You look at the love God has, and you start to see that the story of these giants dying, I don't think it's a story about the evil getting destroyed, but about the people of God rising up. And in these names, you get with an almost a messianic message. They set up Solomon's kingdom of peace by this gift that gets given through these names. So look at how God's love has weaved something for us here. Look at the clues that he sets. And listen to this, because it sounds a lot like John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. This is really a summation of the ministry of David. Beloved, my father gave a gift, weaving it all to give a gift from the house of bread, Yeshua, who's given to you. 
And you get these names that tie together, and I, I know that's kind of like, I don't even want to apologize. Like, deal with it. This is cool. And God puts these things into the genealogies. He puts these things into these weird accounts of giant killing. But as the giant's names go, blah, 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 some guy, they don't matter. It's not the evil that matters. What matters is this gift God's weaving into history for us. And, and artfully puts it into the names of these things in a way that I don't even know if the writer knew what they were doing. Other than that, for all of these five people, they just happen to line up like that. 1 Timothy 4.7, I've fought the good fight, I've finished my course, I've kept the faith. David did his job at the end of the day. And if his ministry and calling was to unite the nation of Israel and take out the Goliath, the giants, and the giant's sons with those five stones, at the end of the day, at the end of 2 Samuel, David did what he was called to do. Despite the sins and the failings, he was a man after God's own heart, and he finished the race. You can finish a race after you trip. And that should be a great hope to all of us. We can fail in some things. We can fall. But if our hearts are after the Lord, we get up, we finish the race. And David tries to to the point where he faints on the battlefield and the next person steps up and carries on the work. And because of David's ministry, four other guys step up to help him finish the job at the end of his life. I think that's beautiful. Next week, we're going to get a Psalm of David, kind of his last words. And then he's going to screw up with a census. So... We'll see one more sin of David as we wrap up 2 Samuel. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for your word, these images of grace and gifts. Lord, thank you for a family of believers that puts up with the fact that I think giants are a cool part of history. Lord, I just thank you for the blessings you give. We thank you for your Holy Spirit. May you teach us, Lord. I pray that as we go through this and we do it at high speed, we take out the fire hose and go through two chapters, Lord. I pray there's pieces that stick in our heads all week, that we can meditate on your word, that we can share what we're learning with the people around us as we go into our jobs and with our family and friends, Lord, that we have the same passion for the word of God today as we did when we were first saved. Lord, that passion just ignites us, and we love to talk about it. Uh, we love to share it with people. Lord, help us to express your love to other people in all ways possible. And if we love people, Lord, we want them to come into your kingdom. We want them to fall in love with you like we have. Thank you for your word and these gifts. Thank you for each person in this room. Lord, I pray that you anoint and bless them with your Holy Spirit, that they go out of here tonight and they are strengthened and encouraged and blessed because you've done those things, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.